um, what we're praying about. Um, it's just so important. And ask your parents, um, hey, what, I, if you're confused, I, like my kids asked me last week, they said, what was the covenant thing stuff? And, and I got to say, you should know that. You know, no, no. Your mother hasn't been teaching. No, no, no. But, um, but I got to, we got to talk about it over lunch. And so it's a, um, the, the unique thing about this church is that we value the family worshiping together. And so, um, and that's, that's all walks of life. Uh, the church is made up not of segregated groups of people, but different ages, ethnicities. And what an expression that is when they're all gathered together under God's word. Amen? Yeah. So, that said, um, that's not a rant as much as I'm just genuinely encouraged just watching the kids pray along with us. Um, when we come to today's passage... Um, this, now kids, this is where I'm, I'm going to, I don't know, show that I'm an old man, but, um, I used to watch a movie back in the nineties and, um, that was a long time ago. In fact, for some of the young millennials in here, that was before your time as well. But back in, in the early nineties, I used to watch a movie called, um, The Fugitive and it's with Harrison Ford. I guess this used to be a TV show, but anyway. Um, but I'm only familiar with the movie. Um, so Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, you know the famous, I didn't kill my wife. You know, that's the, and that's, it's this guy, he's been accused of murdering his wife. He didn't, he's innocent. But what happens is the marshal is, is hotly pursuing him, constantly trying to catch him. He's just, just always just, just evading him, right? He's, he's almost got him and then he's, he's jumping off of like dams and all kinds of crazy stuff so that he doesn't get caught. And when I read through today's passage, I, th I thought to myself, well, it's kind of like David. He's, he didn't do anything bad, and yet he's being hotly pursued, right? He's, he's, being, he's a fugitive. He's, he's, he's the king. We know that, but he's a king on the run. And even though he's being pursued, he is still preserved by God. And so as I was reading through the passage this week, those two things were kind of teasing out in my head. He's pursued, and yet he's preserved. He, or he's persecuted, and he's preserved. And so what I want us to see in this passage today is that David is pursued by evil, yet preserved by God. David is pursued by evil, and yet preserved by God himself. Another thing, too, is as we read through this passage, we have to keep, so have that, if you want to hang your hat somewhere, you can have that in the back of your mind. But the other thing that you want to keep in mind as well is, remember these stories aren't just <coughs> cute you know, events that are recorded for us to mimic. In fact, we're going to see David's behavior today. Probably you shouldn't do some of the things that he does. But they're meant to point beyond themselves. Bless you. They're, they're meant to point beyond themselves to a greater story, to David's greater son. You know, 
the Lord Jesus himself will say things like, foxes have holes and, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When Jesus is born, he's born in an insignificant town, pursued by a rebellious, God-hating king, has to flee and come back eventually. You see some of the little patterns there? Jesus himself, like David, gathers around him a motley crew of people. The, 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 the have-nots, the losers, the, 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 the non-wanteds, or the wanteds. And what does he do? Points them, points them to where true grace, true life can be found. And so those are the things that, if you want to, I guess, distill this whole thing down as I read it, ask yourself, how is God preserving David, but how is this story operating for a greater story found in Jesus? Make sense? Um, that's the way that, you know, that's the way that we want to read our Bibles, by the way, is um, you want to read your Bible and say, how is this, every time you open up the text, you want to say, how is this pointing to Christ? How is this showing Jesus, his person, and his work? That's the end game. Christ is the point of Scripture. All Scripture points ultimately to him, to his person, to his work. It doesn't point to a nation. It doesn't point to uh, some eschatological position that sounds kind of cool and we can make movies about it. It points to Christ. That's, that's the point of Scripture. And so you ask yourself as, as we read through this, how is this story, like a microcosm, makes sense, pointing to the greater story? So kids, ask yourself that same thing. As I read today, okay, there's all kinds of interesting things happening, but how is this pointing forward to Jesus? How is this landing with Jesus? All right? So that's what you want to ask yourself. That said, why don't we look to the Lord and let's ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness to us. We ask now that as we open your word, we pray that you would do what only you can. And we ask that you would penetrate hearts, change minds, remind us of our sin, and point to the Savior. Lord, this next 30 minutes, if it were up to me, and it were up to us, concentrate or get something would be the biggest waste of time. But we trust that through this thing called preaching, through the voice of a mere man, we ask that you would conduct that divine dialogue in our souls, showing us Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
So last week, we left, we left off with David on the run. And if there's one thing that David knows for certain, there's one thing that he knows for certain is that Saul wants him dead. There's now a price on his head. But this time, there will be no Jonathans. There will be no Macals, his wife. There will be no Samuels to shield him from danger. He is now on the run and he is by himself. So what do you do? Well, David does what any sensible person would. He, he runs. He, he, he runs without having a chance to pack his bags or, or bring any supplies. And where do you flee? Where do you flee when all your food and resources are depleted? A place of refuge, right? A, a sanctuary, which is what he does. He, he makes a beeline for a spot called Nob. This was where the priest served at, likely where the Ark of the Covenant was after the death of Eli. This is a holy spot, a house of worship. But when he shows up there alone, sort of bursts onto the scene, rather disheveled and famished, the priest senses something's up. Something's not right. Something doesn't feel right about this. Why, why is David in such a hurry? Why is he by himself? I mean, he knows that David is the commander of the royal bodyguard. And so it'd be strange for him to go anywhere <laughs> without the king, right? So why, why is he by himself? And what does David do? How does David respond? Because after all, he's going to say, well, what are you doing here alone, David? And he assures him, and kids, don't, don't be like David. He lies. He fabricates. He cocks up, he cooks up something. That's right. Look, come, you don't believe me? Come with me here. Or you can follow along with your mom and dad. And David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you, and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? David plays this whole thing off, claiming he's on a secret mission, some covert operation. He's like Jason Bourne, right? And, and immediately, what does he say? Look, uh, my immediate needs are I need food, I need shelter, but you need to help me. Now, was this lie spontaneous or premeditated? We're not told. Still a lie, though. A lie is still a lie is still a lie, right? How come, though? Like, what's the reason behind his fabrication? Is it because he doesn't trust Ahimelech? I mean, Ahimelech is the great-grandson. Remember the priest Eli? That's his great-grandson. And Ahimelech's brother is King Saul's personal chaplain. Okay? So maybe blood runs thicker than water. Maybe this is a little too close to home. 
Maybe he's a bit apprehensive with Ahimelech. He doesn't quite trust him. Could that be the reason that he lies? Maybe. Or is he trying to actually protect Ahimelech? Um, in other words, does he lie and attempt to spare him? You don't want to be accused of sheltering or, or colluding with a known outlaw, right? But if you're unaware of this reality, what can you claim? Well, I didn't know. You can claim ignorance. Again, we don't know why David cooked up this story. In any case, the Bible doesn't recommend this behavior. It just reports it. It doesn't recommend it, just reports it. And from Ahimelech's perspective, David shows up and he's starving Marvin. So why not give the guy some food, right? Fair enough. There's just one problem. He didn't have any ordinary bread. He didn't have any, any normal bread on hand. The only stuff he's got is the priestly food. Come to verse 3. Look at verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever else is here. And the priest answered him, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Uh, this is what's known as show bread or the bread of presence. Uh, it takes us back to uh, the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Um, you could, if you see a picture here, it's not a real life picture, but just a little uh, caricature of it. If, if you're able to pull that up, Rob, maybe, maybe not. Boom. I don't know how well you can see that. But there's a picture of the priest and the showbread. Um, not a picture, but you get the idea. And, and this was how the tabernacle was to function. What happened was, in the tabernacle, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread were placed on the table to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Sabbath, this bread was piled on the table as a reminder that God sustains His people and supplies their needs. Look at Leviticus 24. Moses says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord Almighty. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So, it, okay, is that giving you a bit of a picture of when David rocks into the tabernacle and he goes, I need some bread, and he goes, dude, the only stuff I've got is the holy bread. Does that now kind of give you a picture? You, you can't, it, I mean, God's law required that this bread was, who, who's supposed to eat this bread? I mean, when the bread, do they just take this out on the streets and just start throwing it out? Who wants, who wants some free bread? No, 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 only the priests were to eat this in a holy place. You, you got that from Leviticus, Right? The exception to the rule, the exception to the rule being a desperate situation where this food could save somebody's life. If that were the case, then it was okay to pass out this sacred bread to the person in need. You with me? And so being the priest at Nob, that's what Ahimelech is, he actually has the authority to interpret this situation and give David the priestly bread on the basis that he was ritually clean. Still tracking? I realize some of you already, you've, already, you've already glazed over. You've already tuned out at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm starting to sound like the parents sound like in Charlie Brown. Womp, 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 womp. So don't, don't tune out. Don't glaze over on me. Come on. Because in verse 7, there is this all of a sudden dropped into the narrative. There's this shady character with a, you know, a hood on, and he's eavesdropping on this whole thing, this conversation. He's watching carefully everything that's going on. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Notice here. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name, dun-dun-dun, was Dodgy Doag. Right? That's not in the text. I added that in there. Yeah. His name was Dodgy Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. I mean, his, just that name alone is meant to send shivers up your spine, right? Notice, though, that David wasn't the only visitor that day. Did you see that? There was another man sitting off to the table side, right? He's watching very closely the way David came in, the way he's talking to the priest. It's not random that Doag has somehow slipped into this story. We'll discover later that he's actually one of the key villains. But for now, we're told, what is it that he's from where? He's from, you see it? He's from Edom, right? You remember a few chapters back, Saul fought against the Edomites? Remember that? So, so it could be that he's a prisoner of war, or he's like a mercenary for Saul, or, or he could be something like the head of Saul's secret police, the Gustapo or whatever, right? Whatever the case, he would have known David. Like he wouldn't have been like, who's that bloke? He would have known all the days that David had been with King Saul, Doeg had also been there. He's Saul's chief herdsman right? He, he had heard David sing and play to calm Saul down. Maybe he'd start to see and catch and notice a bit of tension between the two blokes. Maybe he's been hearing rumors that Saul wants him dead. If so, all the more reason as some political opportunist to sort of eavesdrop in and Watch carefully what David's doing. And that's exactly what Doag does. He watches David eat this sacred food. And then he listens carefully to the request that David makes in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Yeah, lie again. And the priest said, oh, there is one sword here. <laughs> this is, I love this. I mean, now that David has fed his belly, he asked for a weapon. And it so happened that there was one sword there, one which years earlier, David himself had brought there from the Valley of Elah. Uh, this sword was likely now kind of like a museum piece, if you picture that. It served as a reminder of, of the great act of salvation that God accomplished for his people in slaying the giant. Notice here in verse 9, And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give me that sword. Right? 
For years, this sword was carefully kept and tended, preserved from scratches or tarnish. It it was there to be viewed by men and women who came to pray at this sanctuary and renew their faith and trust in God. School children took field trips to Nob to look at it and admire this museum piece. And today, it will be given again to the guy who brought it there to arm him, to prepare him for battle. You see, David arrived to the holy place hungry and defenseless, but he'll leave full and equipped. David arrives there. He, what, he's hungry, he's defenseless, and, and what is he? He leaves full. He, he leaves equipped. Three blokes walk into a pub or in a sanctuary. You've got a priest, a political opportunist, and a guy who's desperate. Isn't it interesting? They're all there for different reasons, I reckon. One is detained by God. Don't know what that even, no, no, you can read 30 different options for that in commentaries. But he's there. And he uses this opportunity, rather than to seek God's face in the sanctuary, he uses the information that he hears, not to align himself with the anointed king, but to actually ingratiate himself to the false king. Because later, it will be when Saul realizes that no one, no one has reported where David is at, and he's spewing and he's screaming at everybody. It's Doag that says, I know, I know where he, I know who helped him. I know who came to his aid. I know he gave him food and a sword. It was Ahimelech. And Saul will gather Ahimelech and 85 priests and say, why have you conspired against me? And they're like, what are you talking about? And Saul says, kill them. And even his royal guard is like, no, these are priests, man. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And it's Doag, who is a political opportunist, who is probably only ingratiating himself to the religious establishment for his own furtherment, who then says, I'll slaughter these guys. About the people, imagine that. I don't know, probably about 85 people in this room. Imagine one guy just sits there with a sword, one by one, strikes all of us in this room down again and again, cold-blooded, probably didn't have a shred of guilt in him as he did it. And then takes it a step further in this little priestly town of Nob, puts them under the ban. The one thing that Saul was supposed to do to the Amalekites, he now does to his own people. Do you remember that? That was part of his problem back in chapter 15. What is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? You remember that? And, and he's like, oh, well, I spared all of the best stuff. And, and that's what gets him judged. And instead of doing that to the enemy, now he reverses it and he does it to his own people. Men, women, children, he slaughters them. You know, you remember when they were requesting a king like all the other nations? Well, there you go. You wanted it. Be careful what you asked for. Now you've got it. So three blokes walk into a sanctuary. One 
sees the spirit of the law and bends things accordingly. That's the priest. The other comes hungry, albeit dodgy, but he knows he is, and he knows he needs God's mercy. And the other comes as a political opportunist. Why are you here? Is, are you here because you know that you're a, you, you need God's grace, you need to hear his word preached, you're coming and sitting under that? Are you here to rightly understand people that are, and, and sift out, especially if you're here and this is your church and you're saying, who are the people that I have covenanted with and the people that I can pray for and the people that need help and the people that are in desperate need? How can I get out of my own skin and start thinking about the other people here in this church and be praying for them like Ahimelech? Or are you more like Doak? You, you come here because of what you can get out of it. You come here because there's an opportunity here, albeit for maybe a community, albeit for maybe you can, who knows what? God knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows your thinking. Three blokes walk into Wyoming Church of Christ. Which one are you? Three people walk into Wyoming Church of Christ. Just a thought there. So let's come back to our narrative here. So David, he leaves now equipped, fed, but in the back of his mind, he knows Saul is still out for him, right? Saul will leave no stone unturned until he finds him. He's not safe to stay there at Nob. So where's the one spot you can go to that's out of Saul's reach? 37 Ks south, deep into enemy territory, behind enemy lines. That's it. So next in verse 10, it's this crazy scene. Come with me there. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. So again, Saul's not necessarily there, but he knows that Saul's going to be hot pursuit, in hot pursuit of him. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, whoa, hold on a second. Gath, you might have read right over that and just kind of been like, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, he just, he went to Gath. But hold on a second. Who is from Gath? Who's the national hero from Gath? Goliath. Boom, Goliath, two points for Knowles. And here is David, right? Don't forget the sword he just grabbed. And now he's walking down the main street of Gath with Goliath's sword swinging by his side. <laughs> I mean, it's like showing up at an eels party wearing a Panthers jersey, right? <laughs> or showing up at a state of origin, right, with the different, you know, whatever. You're, you're cruising for a bruising. You just don't do that. But David is so desperate. Well, and what did he think there, too? He could just sort of blend in incognito. I mean, maybe he thought, oh, you know, hey, look, back then I was a bit younger. I didn't have as much facial hair. You know, I was, I was in the Valley of Elah. And so, you know, they couldn't really see me, you know, I don't know. And remember, David's a very humble guy. And so maybe I'll just sort of blend in with the crowd here, blend in behind enemy lines. But no, no, no. The, the servants of Akish, they're, they're straight onto it, right? They say to each other, wait, well, hold, hold on, hold on. Is it? No. Is that him? Is, is, isn't this the Jewish folk hero that they write songs about? Saul struck down his thousands, right? Look at, look at verse 11. 
And the servants of Kish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? They got that wrong, or did they? Anyway. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now notice, David pulled out his sword and he said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, David's a human. David took these words to heart and was much afraid. He was much afraid of the king of Achish, the king of Gath. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating scene. I mean, there's David thinking he can blend in, be incognito, and I think all of a sudden the penny drops for him. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm in Goliath's hometown. What was I thinking? And then he's quickly apprehended, brought, notice the words there too, he's, he, he, he's brought before the king. It's not like, the, <laughs> again, conjecture on my part, but I think fairer. It, do you really think that they went up to him and they said, oh, hey, mate, would, would you mind ha- having a chat with the, with the king? Would you mind having a chin wag real quick? And Is that cool? No, it was like, if that's the guy, grab him, you know, throw his arms back, and they apprehended him, and they shoved him, probably, threw, probably punched him, who knows, a couple times, brought him before the king. David's realizing, this is it for me, I'm dead. And so when he's brought before them, his only defense is, it's insane, literally. It's crazy, literally. Look at verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. There's, there's something undignified about Israel's national treasure behaving this way. First, he graffitis nonsense on public property. Then let's spit drip down, run down his beard. This isn't hipster beard oil, by the way. You know, this is just saliva. Apparently, though, his acting skills were Oscar-worthy because they let him go. Get this guy out of here. Get this lunatic out of here. Don't I have enough crazy people in my own kingdom to worry about? I don't want him coming to my house. Get him out of here. And, and to the human eye, we think, wow, well, that must be like David is really, I mean, he's a really sort of smart, quick on his feet sort of guy. That might be true to an extent, but hold on a tick. What are we seeing here? Yet again, God preserving his life. He, he's on the run. Now he's sur- literally surrounded by enemies. And before we move on to the next scene, glance with me back up to verse 12. This is the first time we read of David being afraid, and rightly so. His life is on a knife edge. Do you ever wonder what was going through his mind there in verse 12, in that moment? I mean, what what was going on in his head? I can tell you. Turn to Psalm 56. Look at Psalm 56. This, he wrote this during this time. Notice what he says in Psalm 56. David tells us something that was going on in his heart in the midst of this very distressing situation. He says, Psalm 56, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long an attacker oppresses me. 
My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, do you see his transparency there? He doesn't say, well, because I'm such a godly and spiritual man, I'm never afraid of anything. No, when I am afraid, what do I do? I go to bed, put the covers over my head, put a pillow over my head, and wish that all my problems would disappear. I sit down with a tub of ice cream. I rant on my friends. No, no, no. What do you do when you're afraid? Here's what David does, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I deliberately put my trust in God, and when I do, He deals with my fear, putting my, because I'm putting my trust in Him. What's He doing in these unstable situations where He thinks He's going to die? He trusts God. Not only that, look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. What, what, a, what a beautiful expression that is. You know, as a parent, when one of your kids gets hurt, maybe you've experienced this, and they're crying, perhaps you hold them to yourself and kiss the tears that are falling down their face, and it breaks your heart. It says that God, God Almighty, your Creator, captures your tears. He's concerned about the things that break your heart. God cares about this. See, what goes through the mind, friend? Think about this. What goes through your mind when you're attacked unfairly, oppressed in an unjust way, when it seems that everything in your life is going wrong? At that moment, what is the question that comes naturally through your mind. Does God care? Does he care for me? David discovers in the midst of this that you put my tears in a bottle. And that's not all. Look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. This I know. See if this sounds, smells like Romans 8 to you. This I know. God is for me. See, later on, friend, the Apostle Paul will reflect on this when he writes Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That was David's experience. Trusting in God in difficulties. Look at... Go to Psalm 34. Flip over there quickly. Again, and look at the title of it. When David changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Look, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
beautiful language. Beautiful. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Notice there too at verse one, I will bless the Lord at when life is good. I will bless the Lord when I get what I want. I will bless the Lord. Now, is that what it says? No. I will bless the Lord at all times. At all times. How can you do that? Because you know God and you trust him. He is your refuge. He is your strength. You know that he is close to the brokenhearted. And that's only possible because of Christ. Because of Jesus. Because he was abandoned like no one else. That the full fury and wrath of God was poured onto Christ. Not because of any sin that he ever committed. No sin was ever found, no deceit, no lie was ever in his mouth. But it's only because of his great dear love for us that he goes to the cross and the glory of his Father takes on the full wrath of God so that we can be forgiven and saved. And now there is no, for those who place their faith in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. And if, if the Lord has saved you, he has sealed you. You are his. Remember we talked about covenant last week? God will not break covenant with his people. He will keep you to the end. Nothing or no one can snatch you out of his hand. Now, let's come back to the rest of the story because it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating account here. So, so David... Yeah, it's interesting. You, you sort of picture he, he leaves there. And maybe he's a bit kind of stunned himself. Like, he's like, get, out, get him out of here. And then they sort of shove him out of the town. He's kind of going, oh, did that just happen? And he's like, then he catches up with his parents in a cave because his parents come to meet David, not so much because they love him, but actually, I mean, if they're smart, Saul's going to have them executed. So they come to David and he, as he's there in the cave, there's this interesting, uh, this fascinating passage here that all of the have-nots, all of the, well, let's just look at it. 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. It's fascinating. Here are these outcasts. Motley crew. People that, well, let's be honest, they, they know the world doesn't love them. And you know, if you're honest too, you might have some friends, but you know that the world can be a nasty place. And the world is not for you, friend. It's not for you. And so here are these 400 men who gather around their leader, the outcasts, the distressed, the discontented, and they look to him. And in a similar vein, Jesus calls the outcasts, 
the unwanted. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And one day, Jesus, in resurrection power, exits a cave and is able to say, you come to me now. And all will be forgiven because of my work. It's an amazing passage that, again, it points to a greater David. A David who never sinned. A David who never lied. A David who never was a rapist and a murderer, but but was murdered for our sins. Was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace. You see? By his wounds we are healed because we all like sheep have gone astray each one has turned to his own way and the lord has laid on him this greater son of david the iniquity of us all do you know that christ have you trusted in david's greater son the true king and the title of this is the king is coming i intentionally made that vague because you know that the true david there's pictures of it some good, some bad. But it lands ultimately in Christ. Maybe you're in a space this morning where you're feeling unjustly persecuted, pursued. Friend, look to the Lord and no one else. He will preserve you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. It's a good God. Lord, we thank you again for truths that we've heard and yet never tire of, that we need to hear again and again. We pray, Lord, that as we now step back and celebrate this this reality of you, the Lord Jesus, your body being nailed to a cross, real blood poured out, We pray that you would stir in our hearts an affection for you, that we would rejoice in this unbelievable truth and reality that you have done for us by saving us, by being our substitute. Pray for those that are here that are the doags amongst us, Maybe they're here because their family has come for decades. They don't feel like they want to break family ties. Or maybe they're here because who knows what, Lord, we pray that you'd shine light on all those false motives that they have, convict them of sin, and draw them to yourself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.